Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk about the impact the pandemic has had on nonprofit agencies in Franklin County with Michael Wilkos. He's from the United Way of Central Ohio. Courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light looks at the justice system in Franklin County from the side of the public defenders. He'll also talk with former Franklin County Auditor Clarence Mingo about the current environment with protests and politics that are sometimes involved. And with Ray Hederman from the Buckeye Institute about Ohio's economy. And I'll wrap up the hour talking to Jennifer Milianico. She's the Vice President of Marketing for Hollywood Casino Columbus, which reopened on Friday. First up on Columbus Perspective, I'm talking with Michael Wilkos, who is the Senior Vice President of Community Impact for the United Way of Central Ohio. How are you? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us a little bit uh, in a nutshell about the United Way of Central Ohio. Uh, United Way of Central Ohio has been around for uh, almost 100 years. We will turn 100 in 2023. Uh, we focus our fundraising efforts in a few core areas, which is student success, uh, meaning kids are ready for kindergarten and uh, young people have uh, uh, complete high school successfully. We focus on basic needs, hunger and homelessness. Uh, we support uh, the effort for people to get good jobs and also uh, building strong neighborhoods. We fund 80 top-performing nonprofits in Franklin County. Of the several thousand that exist, uh, we've selected 80 that are in those core areas that I just described. We are one of the 20 largest United Ways in the United States. We are the only uh, United Way in that top 20 that raises money in a single county. So we do about $31 million of uh, fundraising just from folks here in Franklin County, and we distribute those dollars in Franklin County. And then you look at the Columbus Foundation, uh, which is uh, one of the top 10 largest community foundations in the United States. So for us to live in a metropolitan region that ranks about, I think, 33rd or 34th in population, to have a top-performing United Way and a top-performing community foundation is a real testament to the individual and corporate giving of this community. I understand that United Way has been involved in a survey recently, or actually more than one. So when COVID started uh, uh, to really impact the community and when the governor issued the stay-at-home order, we started to reach out to those 80 nonprofits that we fund to see how they're doing. Uh, what are some of the issues that are affecting them and how are they moving to a virtual format and are they losing revenue and have they been able to adapt? And we were getting incredibly thoughtful, really uh, detailed responses from executive directors and we immediately said within that first week, wow, this is great information, how do we collect it? So we decided in that uh, end of that first week to do a survey and uh, we got uh, incredible data. United Way has about 80 member agencies. The Human Service Chamber of Franklin County has about the same. Many of them are members of both organizations, but if you look at collectively the Human Service Chamber and United Way, there were about 100 unduplicated nonprofits. Now, for many people, you think a nonprofit might be two people that work in the basement of a church that's helping people with basic needs, but if you look at the 100 nonprofits that our two organizations represent, they have a combined workforce of 15,000 people. Wow. So if you think of the YMCA and Boys and Girls Clubs and the Community Shelter Board and Lutheran Social Services and Salvation Army, these are highly sophisticated, large organizations that are the frontline defense for children and families that are navigating difficult times. So when COVID-19 comes, 
where are the needs of people in this community, they're going to the nonprofit sector. And let me put into perspective, about 16% of Franklin County lives at 100% of the federal poverty level, which is about $12,000 a year. And there's another 16% of Franklin County that earns between 100% and 200% of federal poverty, meaning up to $24,000. So 32% of Franklin County is really economically struggling every month to meet their basic needs. And then COVID-19 comes. Um, and we know that disproportionately it impacted low-income people, it impacted communities of color, and we have this nonprofit network that's the frontline defense. So we wanted to reach out and see what they were doing. So we did a survey in March, we did a survey in April, we did a survey in May. So back to one of those um, results, those um, 85 organizations that completed the survey, collectively they deliver about a thousand different programs, a workforce development program, an early education program, an after-school program for kids. And what we knew by April was only 20% of those 1,000 nonprofit programs were operating the way they were on March 1st, uh, meaning uninterrupted. And those that were operating uninterrupted generally were the food banks, um, and the shelter system, which we're seeing an increase in need very quickly, right? We've seen a 30% increase in people who need food. A large number of people going to food pantries and food banks have never been to one in their life, right? This was a, a first-time episode. Um, six, so 20% were operating at the same capacity they were. 62% uh, were operating at a limited capacity. Think about an early education program when child care centers closed. Think about an after-school program or an in-school tutoring program. How do you run an in-school tutoring program when the schools close? How do you reach those kids when there's a digital divide? Um, and then there were about 18% of the nonprofit programs that just stopped altogether. So if you're a workforce development program where you are going to a physical location to take a class that's helping you with barrier removal, that's helping you learn a new skill, that's then going to link you to a job and provide you the support, well, you can't now come in person. The organization might not have been set up to do virtual learning, and they had to pivot. And so by May, what we learned is that a lot of organizations had pivoted and uh, were doing stuff digitally. They had to train staff. They had to buy equipment. They had to provide Chromebooks or laptops and Internet access into low-income homes. Um, and we saw just an incredible resiliency of the nonprofit sector because they are motivated, right, by this uh, belief that there needs to be support so people can meet their full potential. And that's what I'm really proud about this community because we have some of the highest performing nonprofit, in my opinion, in the state of Ohio. Talking with Michael Wilkos, he's Senior Vice President of Community Impact for the United Way of Central Ohio. And the scary thing is that there's still a lot of uncertainty going forward for many of these agencies. There's a lot of uncertainty, and um, that really manifested itself in a lot of anxiety. Um, as you could well imagine, uh, one of the questions that we asked is, you know, do you have the personal protective equipment needs for you to uh, reopen? And 94% of the nonprofits that we surveyed were in need of some type of PPE. PPE is what we call personal protective equipment. And so like 87% of organizations need more face masks and 75% need digital thermometers, which are really hard to get. 69% of all of our member agencies need more gloves. Um, some need safety glasses and face shields, depending upon what they do. But when you look at just face masks, um, 
those 85 nonprofits reported that they need 140,000 face masks over the next several months to do their work. And if you think about a lot of nonprofits, um, their bread and butter, in order for them to deliver services, are volunteers. And a lot of volunteers tend to be people who are retirees. Uh, they, they have the financial resources and they have the time, and those are the folks that have to be most vulnerable to COVID. So if you have a lot of retirees that are volunteering daily in your uh, food bank, they might not want to come visit. And so you have to make sure that you're providing them the uh, PPP, uh, PPE needs uh, so they can be effective in that work. I talked a few weeks ago to the Ohio Association of Food Banks who called this all a perfect storm, uh, partly because of what you say with uh, most volunteers being older and, and unable to get out, and also with the run on grocery stores early on, it meant that supplies that were being donated to food banks were down. Yes, one of the things that you probably saw across the country were these um, lines of cars where people were waiting three and four hours to get food. Never happened in Central Ohio because the Mid-Ohio Food Bank, or now the Mid-Ohio Food Collective, is such a top-performing organization. They were able to meet those needs. They were able to do it efficiently. Uh, their, their staff and volunteers were, were still coming, and they were able to provide them with those personal protective equipment needs, um, and we just never saw those long lines. What's really important, though, I think, for uh, folks to know uh, who often want to donate food items, the most effective way for us to meet those needs is to provide financial assistance, if we can, to say the Mid-Ohio Food Collective, because they're able to buy in bulk, and they know exactly what food items are needed, and they've been able to secure those food items. So now that um, we now know that uh, despite a run on certain things like cleaning supplies and paper towels and stuff, the, the food system is kind of working as we need it to. These 80-plus agencies, some large, some small, are there operational expenses changing at all because of uh, whether they uh, have gone through cutbacks or just because they operationally can't do as much as they were, you know, before the pandemic hit? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's, there's two ways to, to look at this. Um, between March and April, uh, close to 90% of all of these nonprofits had uh, reported a loss of revenue. A big uh, part of that were fundraisers, which, you know, you cannot do uh, uh, lunches at the convention center or galas on a Friday or Saturday night. And these are uh, galas and fundraising events that have always happened with a level of predictability, and all of a sudden that revenue was gone. But also, and that was about uh, two-thirds of all nonprofits uh, had to cancel fundraising events. Those that are scheduled for late summer and early fall they're not sure those are going to happen either. So we initially reported that there was about $8.5 million of revenue loss among those agencies due to canceled fundraising events. We think that's going to grow. But also, contributions went down, right? We saw an unemployment rate in Central Ohio go from 4% to 14%. So there was a little bit of vulnerability there. What we now know is that Columbus is getting through this much better than any other region in the state. It is below the state average. It's below the U.S. average. And Columbus, by the way, has the highest percentage of workers that are able to work digitally. And you've seen articles uh, in the press from Megan Kilgore to the auditor that this was the first recession, if you will, that was led by the service sector. So you saw uh, hairstylists and uh, waiters and uh, some retail workers were losing their jobs. But if you think about the 
50 largest companies in Columbus, we have state government, we have universities, we have insurance, and we have banking. And unlike the financial crisis of 11 years ago, all those big industries in government and insurance and banking that I just mentioned were able to go remote. And so the highest wage earners didn't see their income interrupted. And so while you might expect, say, the city to lose 10% of its income tax because the unemployment rate goes from 4% to 14%, the city recently announced that their revenue looks like it's going to be down only 4.6 because high-wage earners are still paying into that system. So back to the impact on nonprofits. They had to cancel fundraising events. They saw a drop in donations, but also two-thirds of them uh, have fee for services. I mean, if you think about the YMCA, they run child care centers and they run uh, gyms. Well, they had to close their gyms and they had to close their child care centers. Well, those are fee for services. Um, and, you know, people canceled their gym membership because the gym is closed for three months. And then you had reimbursements. A lot of nonprofits receive reimbursements from government. And if you're not providing workforce development, if you're not providing units of service for an academic program, you cannot bill uh, government for the reimbursement of that service. So huge issues there. And then, PPP came in, uh, which was the federal government stimulus package that provided payroll protection. And what we learned in our survey, 86% of all of our nonprofit members who applied for PPP received PPP at the dollar amount they requested by early May. And that was, by the way, $43 million. Wow. These 85 nonprofits were able to secure through the stimulus package that uh, provided a financial stopgap for those couple months. It's now actually the federal government has changed that to allow PPP to be used over a 24-week period. Because United Way and the Human Service Chamber has uh, sophisticated nonprofits, they were able to secure those dollars effectively. I am concerned about a lot of small community-based organizations, those that focus on new Americans, those that focus on communities of color. They were probably not as successful in going through the paperwork to secure those stimulus dollars, and I worry that those nonprofits are going to stumble here before the end of the year and into next year. Talking with Michael Wilco, Senior Vice President of Community Impact for the United Way of Central Ohio. You mentioned the uncertainty about fundraisers in the future, but it would seem with, with so many businesses reopening now, even the amusement parks are opening next month, that there might be some opportunity to do that. But I guess you know, that it takes a lot of planning and scheduling ahead of time for the, to pull these off, especially if they're done at a different time of year than they normally are. It does. And so I'll, I'll give an example that um, while restrictions have been loosened, there's also the choice that an organization wants to make about, is this the right thing to do for our donors and our, our staff? I'm not the person who does fundraising events, but think about if you've ever been to a thousand-person luncheon at the convention center. Um, every seat is filled. Um, it is a tight space, and there is the economics of raising funds and paying for those hard costs of the meal and the room and the technology and all that event. Right. We did find that some organizations that had already raised money for those luncheons and galas, the corporate side, and they canceled them uh, and didn't actually incur all their costs because they hadn't actually paid for, say, the meal because the event was, you know, two or three months into the future. The corporate community said, fine, don't have your event, the right thing to do, keep our support for the event. Um, we are seeing organizations that are moving to a digital event. So Goodwill, about a week ago, had their um, extraordinary people 
uh, event and they did it digitally and you just you know you watched the, the program and so you know I think in the short term the, these things are working well right uh, electronic meetings uh, digital services I worry about the long-term impact of that uh, because if I think about the nonprofit sector uh, folks want to be together they want to have face-to-face -face contact uh, they, they want to be in a physical uh, space with each other so uh, we'll see when uh, people feel comfortable with that how much we return there was a report that came out from uh, giving USA that talked about charitable donations up 2.4 percent over the last year when it adjusted for inflation but also mentioned that there may be a shift. Most people who give say they'll continue to give, and I'm not talking about corporations, I'm talking about Americans, but that there might be more of a shift to pandemic or even Black Lives Matter type causes going forward. I do think that, uh, you know, we are social creatures and we live in cities because we want human connection. And what I, what I think is true about this country is people rally when there's a crisis. And I think we're having a social crisis. And for most of us, that is a uh, rally point. For some people, they want to participate in a, in a physical protest. Um, for some people, they want to educate, they want to read. I just recently saw the New York Times bestseller list for this past week, and of the 15 highest selling books, 13 of them were on race and equity and inclusion and white privilege. And I thought to myself, there's a moment here, right? Like, for some people, they don't want to participate in a, uh, a, a social justice moment at Broaden High, uh, but they want to learn and they want to educate and they want to uh, reflect on that and maybe they'll have that conversation with their neighbors and with their um, family members. Michelle Alexander, who uh, lives here in Columbus, the author of the book, The New Jim Crow, which is, I think, number five maybe on the New York Times bestseller list right now. She did a great op-ed piece in the New York Times last week that gave some very tangible examples. This is what you can do personally. This is what you can do with your family. This is what you can do in your neighborhood. This is what you can do um, in your workplace. And all of these steps, right, don't have to be marching down the street with a protest line. That's important but it's not for everybody. Um, so giving, I think, will, I think we'll see a boost. One of the things that was true over the last couple of years is while generally giving has been flat and giving is usually a percentage of GDP, what we did see is that um, giving was up for animals and it was up for international disasters. It was down for giving to what I would say building the capacity of humans in the United States, right? When you're in the ninth year of a strong economy and you have record low unemployment, the narrative that so many people are struggling is difficult to get across. Um, and so for some, you know, animals and children and when there are tsunamis and earthquakes, other kind of disasters, those give you this immediate kind of response. And then there are those that are, are victims that cannot be blamed, you know, children or animals. Um, and now we're starting to see that everybody realizes how quickly vulnerable you can be. Even upper middle class families are like, my children's education can be vulnerable. This is really difficult. I'm not an educator. Um, what am I going to do with my kids? I still have to go to work and I don't have anywhere for my children to go and all the daycare is closed. So I think there's this renewed sense of, oh, people's struggles aren't really their fault. <laughs> there are systems in place, one of which structural racism, right? which has marginalized and victimized low-income communities and communities of color for 400 years. 
Um, but particularly people are, are starting to pay attention that, oh, I need to do something, and one way I can do that is to be a, a donor. The shifting is amazing. I mean, when you when you look at a nonprofit who, as you mentioned, might have a big gala every year at the convention center, who would ever think that some kind of a catastrophe could come along that would cause that to not come off, short of something physically happening to the convention center? There are all kinds of examples of things we never thought were possible, right? <laughs> that every retail store and every restaurant and your workplace that would just stop functioning is the way you know it to be. I, I think one of the most, maybe one of many, right, striking images is that the Columbus Convention Center is now being used for our uh, uh, city court. Right. <laughs> so if you, if you have misdemeanor or eviction, um, uh, traffic court, you now go to the convention center to go to court. Um, one of the things that's interesting is there is a tsunami of evictions, by the way, that are coming to this community. And, and I also believe the, the great need, the wave of need, is probably going to hit us in September. So while we have reacted to COVID and closures and the social unrest of the past month, um, I, I think there's a real concern coming because unemployment compensation and the, the PPP uh, uh, from the, the, the government has provided uh, a financial gap for say nonprofits and companies and individuals that will run its course. So there's 1,500 evictions in this community that were backlogged that are now going into the court system. And so of the 80 people a day who are losing their housing, um, I think it's like 25 of the 80 are actually coming to court. Um, and some think that it might be parking down at the convention center, so they quickly shifted, and now parking is free. If you have to go to court, you can park in the garages, and, they, and you don't have to pay anything, which is a great benefit. Um, if for those people who do go to eviction court and go to their hearing, two-thirds of them have been financially helped with legal aid, community mediation services, impact community action. There are resources to help people maintain their housing or to navigate a conflict with a landlord so they can be stable in their housing. But a lot of folks, the majority of folks, aren't going. And so when you don't go, you lose your case. And so what happens when 80 families a day are losing their housing? Are they going to double up? Are they going to end up in the homeless system? Uh, and the homeless system still has to do safe spacing. There's not a homeless shelter in our city that was set up for safe spacing. So the homeless shelter system, community shelter board, is leasing hotels um, so they can keep people at a safe distance. Or the downtown YMCA, which has been a health center for 96 years, is now a meant homeless shelter. Um, so all kinds of uh, domino effects like that are coming. Just a moment or so to go here with Michael Wilkos. He's the Senior Vice President of Community Impact for the United Way of Central Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up here? I am hopeful for the future. Uh, this is a giving community, and it is a community that works really well together. In the first few weeks of COVID, um, we at United Way were receiving donations from corporations that we do not have uh, an ongoing relationship with. We had hotels that were sitting empty who called United Way and said, my hotel is sitting empty, um, can you use it? And the response would be, are you willing to let homeless people and people who test positive for COVID stay in your hotel? And the immediate response was yes, if you need it you can have it. We had companies that shifted uh, their production into making 
uh, face masks and donating those to nonprofits on the front line. I have never seen in my 33 years of working in this space uh, a, a cooperation of funders, of government, of corporations, of people stepping up and saying, what can I do? And I think that's a real testament to Columbus being a really um, smart and open, um, but also a cooperative city. And I'm really, I'm really proud of Columbus. Michael Wilkos again with the United Way of Central Ohio. Uh, thanks so much for your time. It's certainly difficult times, and I think that it's a time when everybody's really going to see the value in these agencies. They are the frontline defense uh, to, to help children and families, and they need our, our support. Uh, they need our volunteerism. They need our, our donations, and they need our, uh, our intellectual gifts. Um, gifts can come in many ways. Money is one of them, but your time and your intellectual talents are equally as important. And anyone who's listening to this show who has a gift, if you want to uh, call United Way, um, we will uh, connect you. Thanks, Michael. Great. Thank you. These are unprecedented times, challenging how the YMCA works to strengthen community as we have for nearly 170 years. But we've always found ways to help people and communities in times of crisis. Right now, Ys across the country are providing emergency child care, shelter, food programs, and outreach to seniors. But we can't do it alone. Whether you're connected to the Y or have a fond Y memory, we need you to stay with us. Reach out to your local Y today and stay with us for a better us. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective of the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. By the way, in this first segment, Scott takes a look at the justice system in Franklin County from the side of the public defenders. He'll feature comments from public defenders Zach Ola and Rena Passas. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Face the State on this Sunday morning. I'm Scott Light. Columbus joined the rest of the country to mourn the death of George Floyd. And like the rest of the country, people here protested rallied, knelt in silence, and they kept the conversation going on race, injustice, and policing. So this morning, you're going to hear from local public defenders who say they know firsthand the injustices people of color face. Governor DeWine weighs in on three words you likely heard this past week, defund the police. A longtime Republican and conservative African-American writes a scathing opinion piece about his fellow conservatives. And an economist will weigh in this morning on how to fix Ohio's massive budget shortfall. Finally, your neighbors and mine at Honda prove once again that Ohioans do step up in crisis. But let's begin this morning with an Ohio lawmaker who is under fire for comments that were roundly called racist. 
State Senator Steve Huffman used the word colored to describe African-Americans and suggested they didn't wash their hands as well as other people. The ACLU of Ohio said that Huffman should quit or be removed from office. He apologized and said his words were awkward and not what he meant to convey. Huffman's words came during a discussion about disparities with COVID-19 in the African-American community. Let's continue to talk about disparities, but in the criminal justice system. Voices were heard and not heard in downtown Columbus. Voices from public defenders who say they see injustice in our justice system. Their voices also went quiet as they knelt in silence for nearly nine minutes. That's the amount of time a white police officer kept George Floyd pinned to the ground. As a public defender, uh, or as any criminal defense attorney in a city this large, with a minority population this large, we, our clients are minorities. Our clients are young black men. And, and the public defender's office specifically, we start representing them as early as age 10 and 11 in our juvenile, uh, in our juvenile department and all the way up through adult misdemeanors and felony charges. I've been a public defender for 15 years, so my contact with the minority population and the young black men in this city is daily. And I read day in, day out allegations, um, police reports where they find probable cause and reasonable suspicious to reasonable suspicion to pull folks over to do traffic stops. And unfortunately, it becomes a running joke down at the courthouse. Uh, why were you pulled over? Driving while black is a very common joke that is made in the courthouse. I learned it when I started in 2005. But it's not a joke, it's, it's a reality. It's a reality that we work with in our daily lives uh, when trying to parse out what we believe to be bad traffic stops versus good traffic stops, bad searches versus good searches. There exists a lot of racial biases that we don't recognize every day within the criminal justice system. Um, I have this poster right here that I wrote statistics and that the sad reality here is that black individuals that come through our arraignment courts are 25% more likely to be denied bail, which means that they don't get any bond. Um, and even though black individuals also have a lower recidivism rate, which means that they're less likely to reoffend once they have an open case, they are less likely to also be given a recognizance bond here in Franklin County. Um, and not only that, but nationally, their bails are typically nine to $10,000 more than those of their white counterparts. So these are just some things that we see that are pervasive within the criminal justice system every day, and it's things that we are constantly trying to fight against. This movement, I think, opens the door back up for people that do what we do to get involved in the conversation. If there's gonna be significant change, if we're going to actually have justice and equality across the races, I think it can start here at a, at a courthouse just like we have here. And all across this country today, public defenders' offices just like ours are meeting like this. They're, they're marching, they're kneeling to bring some awareness to this issue that the kind of day that you have in court can be drastically different depending on the color of your skin and the amount of money you make. And folks like me and public defenders that I work with, we fight tirelessly to try to equal that playing field if we can. Now that's not to say that the prosecutor's office is making it a point to have a policy that says every black individual has a higher bail or is to be denied bail because I don't think that that's the case. But I do think that within the criminal justice system, we see it daily. 
uh, sentences for black individuals are typically 20% higher than those of white individuals. Uh, rates of drug use are pretty much similar between black individuals and white individuals, but a black man is six times more likely to be charged and arrested for a drug crime than a white than a white individual. So um, these are things that we battle against daily. It's things that we take onto ourselves to try to point out to the public, to try to point out to the judges when we're in the courtrooms and things like that. That's our jobs. Um, and we represent everybody. As long as they fall below the state of Ohio poverty guidelines, we represent them and we're more than happy to do it. But we do see every single day that these stats are very real. How much money you have shouldn't matter what color your skin is. Right. It shouldn't matter what country you were born in because we believe in the right to fair and equal representation for every single person that walks in these doors every single day. And as public defenders here and across the country, we see you, Black Lives Matter, we see you, people of color, and we hear you. And we love you. And let, so, me, let me say one thing. Mary And get statements like you're just part of the system you know you're not really here for us you work for the state if we're not paying you um, then you're just here to keep us behind bars and I think that that is a really sad sad myth um, and I also think it's equally as sad that that there is such a jaded attitude about the criminal justice system people should be able to look on the criminal justice system confidently and know that justice is being served and unfortunately I don't think justice is being served in the majority of cases well, along with protests and marches for criminal justice reform last week, you likely heard something else from some of those folks. These words, defund the police. Governor DeWine weighs in. Well, I'm not in favor of defunding the police. I think that would be absurd. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, what, what people are thinking um, about defunding the police. I mean, we, we, need, we need police. We need, we need fire. Uh, we need emergency responders. Uh, these are the people who, who protect us. Uh, they, they protect our lives. Uh, and if something happens, we want to be able to call the police. So it uh, doesn't mean we, we don't make changes. doesn't mean we don't do reforms. doesn't mean we, we constantly need to work on this. Um, there, look, there are real problems out there. Um, and these are things that we, we need to work on. We, we need to have more transparency, and I, I've, I've talked about uh, the example um, uh, that I've seen, uh, and that is you see something bad that has happened, um, and it doesn't necessarily always come make headlines, but it's someone who uh, was fired from a previous position in a police department, and then they end up halfway across the state or halfway across the country uh, in another police department that does not necessarily know what their background was. Uh, so that is, that is a, a problem. I, I think we also have to have um, uh, consistency. Um, in reports in regard to use of force. Uh, and so that's something that, you know, I'm going to talk to the mayors about. I'm going to talk to the chiefs of police about um, because while we get some of that data in, we do not get all of it in. Uh, now, some departments are under a consent decree, um, and so we obviously can't do anything that violates the consent decree, or you'd have to at least go back into court. So these are, these are complex issues. 
But my answer remains what I said, which is which is yes. Now, let's make sure we're providing context here. In Minneapolis, city council there did vote to dismantle their department, but they didn't announce some specifics. They did ban things like chokeholds and neck restraints in all circumstances. Even Hollywood director and activist Spike Lee said this past week, phrasing police reforms as defund the police could send the wrong message. He said this, police officers are greatly needed, but we just need a police system that is just. And again, those were his words. Still ahead this morning, one prominent Republican senator joined a Black Lives Matter march in D.C. A local Republican weighed in on that and called it sad. In fact, this conservative says it's time for his party to stand up for justice and to stand up to the White House. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Former Franklin County Auditor Clarence Mingo wrote a scathing opinion piece in the dispatch about his fellow conservatives. He also blasted President Trump. Among many things, I ask him if he's prepared for the criticism from Republicans, given that that's one area where the president's numbers are more than rock solid. President Trump has the support of some 95 percent of Republicans. I have uh, uh, conservative brethren um, who, who I love and, and hold uh, in, in high esteem. And, and I don't expect all of them to share my voice point by point on my concern. Uh, But it is very hard to overlook. It is very difficult to deny that the last three and a half years have been absolutely abnormal. Um, And it's it's uh, maybe a measure of small respect to have, you know, Clarence Mingo saying I'm deeply concerned. But when you have a voice, um, you know, embodied in General Mattis, a four star United States Marine Corps general saying the president is a threat to democracy, every single Republican senator. Every single Republican member of Congress, every single Republican governor, every single Republican locally elected official should really pay attention to that. And not that we needed General Mattis to say it, because I think this was obvious some time ago, but I think the the level of alert has been heightened. And, um, you know, given the level of concern and love I have for this country, uh, I, I am unwilling to speak only a conservative Republican narrative about the times in which we are living, and those times are dangerous. They're dangerous chiefly because the President of the United States is is unrestrained and has proven himself to be, I say this respectfully, not capable of leading or unifying the nation at a time when we're desperate for real, quality, credible leadership. I'm sure there are people who, who genuinely believe the President is best for America right now, um, and you know, I, I respect their feeling in that regard. I strongly disagree, but, but I respect their feeling. I also asked Mr. Mingo about what he just mentioned there, the times we're living in right now as Americans of all colors, ethnicities, faiths and political parties are demanding change in the criminal justice system. This is a nameless, faceless, mixed multitude uh, of Americans, some black, some white, um, some wealthy, some not, all of whom have come together in a way not seen even in the 1960s to say, we have a problem. Whether I recognize it yesterday or not doesn't matter. I know it to be true today, and I want to do something about this. We, we need that. So this is, this is of a social nature. So we have social leaders, average Americans, taking to the streets to be heard. 
The other side of it is from a political perspective, um, you know, we, we have a bevy of Democrats uh, who have showed the fortitude uh, to speak very honestly, very candidly about where we are at, black Americans to white Americans on the issue of race relations. And, and I applaud that. Um, I, I applaud Republicans. Um, one namely found in Mitt Romney, who, who stepped out in an act of great courage. Um, that meeting, African-Americans traditionally have had a hard road with respect to law enforcement, and that has to be acknowledged, and, and Senator Romney made that clear. There's a lack of Republican leadership on this issue. Um, in place of leadership, there's a lot of fear, a lot of hesitancy, um, and a lot of concern about what the president might think. And I know good and faithful Republicans who know the issue of race relations must be dealt with and the Republican voice must be there. Scott, we're, we are um, at a moment where we are revisiting uh, an illness that has never been properly cured. And it's time, um, you know, whether it was Trayvon Martin or George Floyd or Ahmed Oddberry, this issue of um, lack of justice, lack of equality, police brutality, it, it's been simmering in the American soul for some time. And it's our generation's time in, in turn to, to deal with it and deal with it decisively. Um, th this is a large moment for our country. I think we are at a turning point socially and morally, and it has to be dealt with thoroughly, um, not for the moment or not just for this time, but decisively for all time. And, and, and I think we have the attention um, of Americans um, who, who now recognize this is a longstanding issue that has to be resolved, not just for black Americans, but for the very concept, the very idea of America. Let's talk about another idea of America that's also rooted in data, in numbers. We learned this week that massive decreases in tax revenue due to COVID-19 is now spilling lots of red ink on our state budget. Tax collections are expected to plummet more than 9%. So that's to the tune of $2.2 billion. The Federal Reserve also put out some numbers this week, and it was a grim forecast for the rest of this year. I talked about that with economist and vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute, Ray Hederman. We went into the pandemic crisis. Uh, the Ohio economy was really humming along at all cylinders. Uh, we had unemployment rate down around 4.5%. We're seeing wage growth. Uh, the state was running a budget surplus. Uh, and of course, all that came to an immediate halt in March, where we have seen an unprecedented decline in economic activity. Uh, the unemployment rate has gone from about 4.5% to over 15%. And Scott, as you noted, uh, there's now forecasts that it's going to remain at close to 10% throughout the rest of the year. So this is going to be a long, uh, slow recovery in the sense that some businesses are simply not going to reopen. And I think, you know, it's important that, you know, the state take an honest assessment of where we are because we went from having a surplus to down about a billion dollars uh, uh, reverse in revenues in one short month, which, again, is unprecedented. And so I think it's great news the state has built up the rainy day fund, and now it's going to be time to tap into if the next physical year which starts in July. We've actually started to see a little bit better economic data in the last month in May that, you know, people are starting to be able to uh, shop more, spend more. Uh, we are sealing toilet paper back on the shelves. 
so the economy is recovering. You know, maybe uh, businesses are no longer down 75%. They're only down 40%, you know, which is still pretty horrific uh, when you think about what that means. Uh, so the question that a lot of people are uh, pondering right now and at the federal level, obviously the state level is, how soon will businesses be up, running, and which businesses are not going to come back? Because we know, especially uh, certain industries dealing with restaurants, hospitality, uh, they're not going to hire nearly as many workers they have in the past. And a lot of restaurants simply are, are just not going to be able to survive, given the fact that uh, they were forced to shut down for many months. So, you know, the recovery is going to be slow. Uh, and that's why you're going to have an elevated period of people looking for work. And obviously, that's going to mean state and federal tax revenues are going to be well below uh, where we anticipated. You mentioned the rainy day fund a couple of times. When you look at our state versus others and the moves that have already been made, um, talking about DeWine's budget cuts and things like that, is Ohio in a fair position, good position? How would you compare us to other states moving forward, other states that are also in the same boat, declining tax revenue, but you still got to pay for government services? Well, you know, Scott, Ohio has uh, unfortunately been an economic laggard compared to some of this powerhouse states like Texas, Florida, and Arizona, for example. Um, and so we're not as in good a shape as some of those states that uh, basically had a stronger economic position going into the recession. But I think if you compare where Ohio is relative to our economic strength, um, Ohio's in pretty good shape. Uh, we've been able to build up the rainy day fund that's in excess. Uh, it's closer to $3 billion, which is higher than the anticipated shortfall. Uh, you take a look at the fact that Governor DeWine was, again, able to uh, cut the budget. So we're able to get through this fiscal year, the last couple of months of uh, fiscal year 2020, which ends at the end of June, uh, without raising taxes. Economist and vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute, Ray Hederman. Since the pandemic, we have been committed to bringing you coverage that we call Facts Not Fear. We are also committed to showing in every newscast, every news special that we do, or in every public affairs show like this one, ways that Ohioans are stepping up to help fellow Ohioans and to help the whole country. Thousands of our neighbors, friends, and family at Honda are certainly doing their part. Associates in Marysville have been designing, engineering, and manufacturing face shields that have gone to frontline healthcare workers in 45 states at more than 400 medical facilities. We'll end up producing in the neighborhood of 170,000 units in this initial run. And we're really proud that we're going to be able to put 130,000 of those units in the hands of medical uh, professionals. And we've leveraged our dealership network across North America to be able to do that. We've had a really great response, a lot of interest. We've tried to target hotspots as much as possible, but we've also left some of the decision-making in the hands of people at the local areas. So we really try to also impact the communities where we live and work. On top of that, Honda reconfigured about 6,000 square feet of space in Marysville to make ventilator compressors for a company called Dynaflow. A Dynaflow executive called Honda's effort a godsend. To me, this is really part of our core DNA. We say that we are a company that society wants to exist. So to me, this work exhibits that. It demonstrates that we mean that, that we take action, we walk the walk. So to hear Dynaflow's uh, leadership talk about that from their perspective, it means that we're doing the right things and we're doing them well. So really proud. Way more than a piece of plastic. This is keeping medical 
folks out there, doctors, nurses, clinicians, keeping them safe. And again, this is ingenuity, engineering, and design happening right here in Central Ohio. Thank you all for joining us today. Stay safe, stay healthy. Once again, Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Our military service members volunteer to protect us in the most dangerous places around the world. They step up. And when they are severely ill or injured, returning to their families is only the beginning of their long road home. Wounded Warrior Project provides these brave men and women whatever they need to continue their fight for independence at no cost for life. So now it's time for a grateful nation to step up. Join us at findwwp.org. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of threatening calls from telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. These calls are not from us. Hang up and report the call at oig.ssa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Jennifer Milianico. She is the Vice President of Marketing for Hollywood Casino Columbus. How are you? I'm good. How are you today, Dave? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Well, you have big news this week. In fact, it's already happened by the time this airs, but you opened after being closed for, what, three months or so. You opened on Friday. We are thrilled to be welcoming back all of our guests as well as our team members, uh, because as you said, we've been closed for several months. Tell us uh, what this has been like uh, leading up to this for the casino. What's been going on? So, you know, behind the scenes, obviously, it's been, it's been pretty quiet, but these last couple of weeks, we've been working very closely with the Ohio Casino Control Commission, as well as state and local leaders, public health officials, to make sure that we were getting a, a great set of protocols in place that ensured the health and safety of our guests, as well as our team members, um, and have a very good comprehensive phase one reopening protocol set. Um, and what that'll do is allow us to make sure that when guests come back, as well as our team members, uh, there's proper PPE training for our team members. The guests are welcome back to social distancing reminders, um, hand sanitizing stations, um, anything possible as well as signage, uh, floor distancing markers, making sure that they feel that they're coming back to a clean, safe environment, um, as well as it's fun for them. We know that a lot of people have been cooped up for several months, and they're, they're ready to kind of come back out and feel a little bit of normalcy in this new normal, um, and we want to be able to provide a, a fun environment for them while also making sure that they remember that we are focused on their health and safety. I know that not all elements, uh, such as the restaurants and everything, are, are fully back up, but uh, are you? Uh, how close are you to pre, 
pandemic levels? So in terms of our outlets, um, Take Two Grill and Zen Noodle, uh, those will be open Sunday through Thursday from 11 to 11, as well as Friday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to 1 a.m. Um, and then we recently were able to go ahead and open up our OH restaurant. Those will have limited hours to get started. Um, so actually three of our food and beverage operations will be up and running as well as all of our bars will be functioning too. So that way, again, our, our focus really is to make sure that the guests feel like they can come out in a, a safe, fun environment, as well as be able to bring back as many of our team members as possible in this first phase one. Okay, and the games themselves, uh, there's social distancing involved, so I guess the inside of the casino will look different. Yeah, so it's gonna be a little bit different, obviously, for guests when they enter. Um, for all guests that are coming here, we're, we're obviously encouraging them to, to wear masks upon entering the property. Uh, the only guests that will actually be required to wear a mask will be those playing at the table games. Um, table games, the position will be limited in terms of how many people can play on a table game, and that's going to be based on game type, so depending on which game they're playing. When it comes to the slot machines, uh, when guests come in, they're going to notice that certain slot machines will be turned off. We've gone ahead and our slot team has been amazing since they've come back. They have been working around the clock. We've moved the machines around to be able to space them out. They've been looking at all of the favorite game types to be able to get those spaced so people will be able to play hopefully their favorite ones. Um, but obviously we know we want to be able to keep those distance. Some may be turned off that they want to play and we'll continue to evaluate those over the coming weeks. But um, we'll have the, the machines that are not available marked appropriately, but we want to make sure that people are able to keep that comfortable distance so they can enjoy their games while they play. Talking with Jennifer Milianico, she's the Vice President of Marketing for Hollywood Casino Columbus. What about the handling of chips, cards, tokens, that kind of thing? So when it comes to those games that require in the past a lot of touching between, um, players may see a little bit of difference. Some of those games now they may not, the dealer may be the only one handling, you know, the cards or handling chips, things like that. So. The one big thing is all of our table games are going to have hand sanitizer provided at the table. So you're going to see a lot of the supervisors that are going to be um, wiping down the rails in between providing hand sanitizer between you know the transactions, handling the cards, things like that to make sure that everybody feels that there's you know every contact there's a cleaning process along with it, as well as the fact that we have an on-site chip washer. So all of our chips are being washed uh, routinely. It's, it's a process that we have at all times. So um, in addition to that, for our entire floor, we have a, a disinfecting fog machine that will be running. So when our property is closed for cleaning, that's going to be running through all of the zones. So hopefully players really understand, as well as our team members, we're taking this very seriously. Has there been a lot of sharing ideas throughout the industry, best practices and that kind of thing on how to deal with this? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's something that we've learned, you know, from, from day one when we had to close, I think everybody kind of went to the brainstorming of how we would be able to reopen as an industry and share those, those best practices. Within Penn National, that's one of those things that, you know, we, we started to work on. The properties that we have here in Ohio have worked together. Um, we definitely wanted to be able to come together and be able to get these properties going again. 
um, you know, so that way we could we could bring back our team members as well as bring back these fun fun environments for our guests um, and get going as soon as, as soon as we were given the clearance by uh, the different different departments in the Ohio Control Commission. I've uh, read that cash is kind of king at casinos, but there is uh, a desire to move to a cashless system anyway. But especially given the, the situation today, that there's hope that that might be sped up. That, I mean, that's a great question, and I think that's one of those ones that I think if you came to any of our brainstorming sessions, we we all have you know yearly when we get together as leadership, we we always talk about it when that technology becomes available and is approved. You know, we I think we would all welcoming to that, you know, whether that's sped up so it comes a year from now, months from now, um, it, it's definitely something I think we'd all be we'd welcome to looking at. Talking with Jennifer Melianico, she's vice president of marketing for Hollywood Casino Columbus. I don't know if you could address this or are even able to talk about it at all, but sports betting is on the agenda at the State House. They've been talking about it. There's two different proposals. One would have the Casino Control Commission oversee it. The other would have the lottery. Are casinos on an individual basis or the company itself in Ohio looking at this and, and how it might be involved? Uh, the stance, you know, from our, our standpoint on this is we are just ready to welcome it. Um, so as soon as the legislation is approved, um, we will be excited to have it. Um, obviously, we know that that's going to be another amenity um, and another opportunity to welcome new guests onto our property. Um, and obviously, you know, it made the headlines prior to the closures with our, our partnership with Barstool. So, you know, this will this will just be another great opportunity for us to just continue to expand our our customer database. And I guess it's it's difficult right now to say what that would look like because there are a couple of different proposals. Right, and, and you know, when it comes down to it, at this point, like I said, you know, we're just we're just excited. Um, we know that it's moving forward, and you know, we're just ready and ready and willing and able when it does become approved in the state. Well, tell us, uh, for folks who do want to come out to the casino, uh, what should they keep in mind? What do you recommend as they come in to make sure they're safe and everybody else is? So I know a lot of players are familiar with the fact that we have the two entrances. We have a valet entrance and we have a garage entrance. We are going to be focusing our entrance on the garage to ask people to come through. Um, So be prepared. I think everyone has seen the pictures of casinos opening across the country. Um, inevitably, at some point in time, there will be a line, and we are going to work diligently and thoroughly to try to just keep it as efficient as possible. So please be patient with our team members and our security team as we work to get you in. Um, also, if you are wearing a mask uh, when you do come in, we will ask you to briefly remove that for a second when you do walk in, so that way we can do just a quick identification, um, as well as have your ID handy. Your ID will simply be dropped in by you. We don't have to worry about our security touching it anymore. And then also check out our website, hollywoodcolumbus.com. We've gone out there and provided, hopefully, all of the additional information as well as some frequently asked questions that will help anybody that's looking to come and visit us. Okay, and uh, how many employees uh, pre-pandemic did you have and and how many of them are back at this point? I don't have that information on hand with me. That's really more of an HR question. Pre-pandemic, we were somewhere in the 800 to 900 number. Uh, I just don't have those exact. and right now, uh, post, I, I just don't, I apologize, I don't have that number in front of me. Uh, I can tell you that we have, you know, 2,000 pieces of collateral to let everybody know where to go. That's, that's <laughs> kind of marketing focus right now. <laughs> right. Uh, Jennifer Melianico, Vice President of Marketing for Hollywood Casino Columbus. Anything else you'd like to add? I uh, just want to let everybody know that we are excited to welcome you back. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to be able to get our My Choice program up and running again. And, 
and uh, hope that everybody is ready to come and join us in a, in a very fun, safe, and clean environment. And, Thank you so much for having us on today. Good luck uh, with all this uh, transitioning going on, and uh, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.